Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslovsky. It's time to weigh where you get your social security from. Social security or social security? The distinction will make sense soon. This is episode number 106. Greetings, wonderful listener. Man, I am happy and excited that you're giving me your time and attention for what is going to be a counterintuitive conversation I'm about to lead about two different kinds of social security and how you might even have the best of both worlds. I know that I get a lot of my social security directly from you, so thank you for that. Before we get deep, Here's some love for a specific lovely listener of this show, a man I'm actively promoting as Australian of the Year. I put a picture of Darcy Loon listening to Smart and Simple Matters in Delhi, India in the show notes at joelsoslowski.com slash SASM106 because he's as dedicated to the show as he is to eradicating polio, ending global poverty, empowering children that have never had a voice, and a whole lot more that the world needs. Uh, okay, I, I probably shouldn't put this show on the same level as those other things. Darcy just has a lot to give, and I'm grateful this is one of the places he's decided to do it. Thank you, my friend. Darcy, you are fantastic. Now, if you'd like to have your picture or praise in a future episode's show notes, or even on this very intro of a future episode... You can discover how you can support the show at joelzeslowski.com slash support. Since this episode was published on August 8th, 2016, that means I'm only a few days away from my fourth World Domination Summit event in Portland, Oregon. And can I just tell you, <laughs> I am delightedly excited I mean, if I ever needed to be hooked up to the rejuvenation machine, if I ever needed a turbocharged dose of Social Security, there's almost no place or time on Earth that is better than World Domination Summits. I was going to say that I will tell you all about it, but I already did a whole episode back in number 54. You can go get some stuff there if you're wondering about this thing that I just keep talking about over and over again. So good. So good. Uh, Now, I think I've said this phrase, social security, enough times already that you're probably wondering what all this double meaning, being coy thing is all about. I'm sorry, I can't help it. I love double meanings. Are you ready to get into it with me? I think you are. If so, here we go. I'd like you to picture this. What would happen to you and your family if you had zero dollars to your name for the next year? You couldn't pay for gas to drive anywhere. There would be no grocery store trips because the ones, at least that I know of, they don't take IOUs. You couldn't pay rent or your mortgage or probably even afford to set up a tent somewhere. Would you survive? 
Would you thrive? Could you barely just get by? Where would you be in that spectrum? Now, what I'm about to discuss comes from a worldview that I have to say is partially based on some huge privileges that I have, like being white, male, uh, I'm tall and strong, I'm well-educated, and I'm never hurting for money. But I firmly believe that the less privilege you have, the fewer resources you have right now, the more you'll benefit from this episode. Now, I believe it's for everyone, of course, including you, but I just need to throw that out there. The interesting thing is the seed for this episode actually comes from my chat with Colin Bevan, also known as No Impact Man, uh, in episode 90 of this show. About 24 minutes into our conversation, we started talking about the concept of security, at least the way that Colin was thinking about it and defining it. He was riffing about having physical and financial security, and that got me thinking. When I think of my primary form of security, and I mentioned this to Colin as well, I think about social security, not in the social security administration of the United States, like most people think of when they hear social security. Instead, really, it's the answer to this question that I think about subconsciously and sometimes consciously all the time. It goes like this. Do I have enough connections, community, and resources for my online and offline social circles to sustain me and my family without other forms of security, like physical security, like a roof over our heads, financial security, like a boatload of cash in the bank? Do I have enough social security to sustain me and my family? I then asked Colin, why why do people think more about security as how much financial resources they can tap into instead of how vibrant their, say, local community is? We didn't take a lot of time on that question, but Ever since that conversation, I've just been obsessing about the difference between capital S, social security, and lowercase s, social security ever since. Because this topic is so big, I wanted to dedicate a podcast episode to the pros and cons of basing your security on the recurring payments that we expect from others. It could be an employer, it could be your mutual fund portfolio, residual income from a book that you published, uh, but most prominently for this episode, a government payment in the U.S. in the form of the Social Security Administration. I'll get into the history of where that term Social Security comes from, but I just want you to consider, you know, alternatively, we could base our security on the social capital we build and distribute at the local, global, and digital level. And let's explore which one's better in what context, uppercase social security or lowercase social security. We're going to have fun with this one. If you don't live in the United States or you've never lived in the U.S., you may never have heard of capital S social security before. Uh, And whether you've even collected social security payments or question whether they'll be available to you when you're old enough to be eligible, I certainly question that. The history of this thing is just fascinating. I mean, how did a 15,000-word law about payments to and from the federal government even get the words Social Security attached to them? Come on back in time with me. Even before the Social Security Act of 1935 was an idea in anyone's head. I've never listened to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast, but feel free to tell me how I stack up with him and his show in a moment. We're going deep on a history lesson here. 
According to some research on the Social Security Administration's website, everyone throughout human history has faced a bunch of uncertainties brought on by illness, death, unemployment, disability, or just plain getting old. And up until fairly recently, your body was your livelihood. Any threat to your body, any threat to your livelihood was a threat to your security and being able to provide for your family or community. The ancient Greeks, they stockpiled olive oil as a form of economic security, also known as a way to preserve their social status and bodies when things got rough. As time went on and societies grew in economic and social complexity, and as isolated farms or hunter-gatherer clans gave ways to cities and villages, Europe started creating formal organizations to protect the economic security of their members. Probably the earliest of these organizations were guilds, formed during the Middle Ages by merchants or craftsmen. Now, These folks, these individuals had a common trade or business, and they banded together into mutual aid societies, what we commonly know as, as guilds. These guilds, they regulated production and employment, and they also provided a range of benefits to their members, including financial help in times of poverty or illness, and contributions to help cover the expenses when a member died. Slowly, the state began to assume responsibility for economic security of its citizens as a replacement or supplement to any other formal pool support a person was getting. For example, uh, the English began the development of a series of poor laws adopted to provide help to the poor as the problem of securing your livelihood was seen primarily as a problem afflicting the poor. Now, did you know this? The English Poor Law of 1601 was the first systematic codification of English ideas about the responsibility of the state to provide for the welfare of its citizens. <laughs> Fun fact, huh? Uh, it provided for taxation to fund relief activities. It distinguished between the deserving and undeserving poor. Uh, relief was local and community-controlled, and almshouses were eventually established to get relief in your housing needs. Well... Guess who colonized what would eventually turn into the United States of America? Yes, here's where your history lesson comes in well. It was the English, and they brought their poor laws with them. After the U.S. was officially recognized, the federal government accepted the responsibility of providing pensions to disabled veterans of the Revolutionary War in 1789. Then we have these intriguing events like Thomas Paine publishing a pamphlet called Agrarian Justice in 1797, where he proposed a social insurance program for the nations of Europe and potentially for America too. Yet it's going to be almost a century more before Europe got on board the Paine train. In the meantime, there was this thing called the U.S. Civil War with hundreds of thousands of widows and orphans, hundreds of thousands of disabled veterans. And after the Civil War in the mid-1860s, there was a higher percentage of the population in America that were widows, orphans, or disabled veterans than at any time in America's history. 
from the government's perspective, from the population's perspective, so, so not cool, right? So the federal government intervened and developed a generous pension program with interesting similarities to what we now know as Social Security. A little side note for you, in 1894, military pensions accounted for 37%, 37% of the entire U.S. federal budget. I am doubting anyone was eager to extend financial assistance across the general population at that point in time. Now, turn the page with me. We're going to the start of the 20th century, and there were four huge demographic changes going on in America that made the traditional forms of economic security go... I mean, serious kerblooey here. They were the Industrial Revolution, the urbanization of America, the disappearance of the extended family, and a big jump in life expectancy. Of course, then there were influential events going on in other parts of the world around the same time. For example, Germany became the first nation in the world to adopt an old age social insurance program in 1889 designed by Germany's chancellor, Otto von Bismarck. Germany's emperor at the time, William I, described what they were up to in a groundbreaking letter to the German parliament. He wrote... Those who are disabled from work by age and invalidity have a well-grounded claim to care from the state. And Bismarck here, he's all like, heck yeah, William, you know what you're talking about, dude. Uh, After all, Bismarck was under pressure to promote the well-being of workers in order to keep the German economy humming along at peak efficiency. Plus, He wanted to deflect calls for some more radical socialist alternatives. So this this German system, the first of its kind, provided retirement benefits and disability benefits too. Participation was mandatory. Contributions were taken from the employee, the employer, and the government. Coupled with the workers' compensation program established in 1884 and the sickness insurance enacted in 1888, this gave the Germans a comprehensive system of income security based on social insurance principles. Now, social insurance is a bigger category than social security because social insurance goes beyond direct financial help to things like medical assistance Medicare is a great example of that in the United States or other socialized or semi-socialized versions of healthcare in other parts of the world. So the world here, they certainly took notice of what the Germans were doing and other countries in Europe quickly adopted similar social insurance laws. But the U.S. saw what was happening and collectively said, (laughs) nah, ain't gonna happen here, folks. For those of you who aren't familiar with the U.S. and our ways, uh, according to uh, a great social insurance and social security historian, a guy named Abe Bortz, federalism complicated things in the U.S., which was ironic, at least I think, because Imperial Germany was also a federal state and didn't have to jump through hurdles to make social insurance a reality. I'm going to let Abe take it away for a minute when he talks about, by the beginning of the 20th century, the concept of individualism had become so well entrenched in the U.S. 
that any social action seemed like a threat to personal liberty. Voluntary effort was regarded as more appropriate, of course, and more in accordance with our national character, of course, as defined by the people who were establishing the social norms for our national character. Therefore, social insurance proposals were not considered simply in light of the needs they served, but as a foot in the door for extending state power that would ultimately curtail individual freedom. It was the role of voluntary associations, like private charities, philanthropic efforts, and mutual aid societies that performed the function of mediating between the individual and mass society and the government. That led to the assumption that private groups were best equipped and should be responsible for collective action, which, in other countries, was delegated to the government. Social insurance, it was argued at the time, placed an excessive burden on industry or the state, sometimes even both. They said, um, it's going to result in demoralization, lack of foresight, destruction of the habit of saving, even deliberate malingering. Malingering, that's a good word there. Feel free to use it as well. Uh, besides, this social insurance thing, it is an alien import, if not a foreign conspiracy from Germany and had Marxism written all over it. Now, if you put your place, put yourself in the shoes of somebody in early 20th century America, I get it. I mean, it makes sense within the context of history and where we were as a country versus where other countries were going. Social insurance advocates, however, they tried to point out that compulsory insurance, this thing was inevitable. Voluntary groups, they're strong in Europe. Yet they, too, were forced to turn to compulsory insurance to help solve their problems. Social insurance proponents, they interpreted the compulsory factor in social insurance in a rather technical way. It was simply a mechanism, simply a device to maximize coverage and cost distribution and a means to protect those who most needed but could least afford insurance. Their critics, however imbued this term, social insurance, with moral attributes. But then, then the stock market crashed in 1929, and the Great Depression hit like a ton of bricks in the 1930s. It was a whole new ballgame and philosophical landscape by that time, because millions of people were unemployed. Two million hobos wandered aimlessly around the United States, Banks and businesses were failing left and right, and the majority of the elderly in America were completely dependent on others to survive. There's a lot of context, a lot of important events that went down in the run-up to the Social Security Act of 1935, but President Roosevelt had this thing called the New Deal, and the Social Security Act was a big part of it. With all this as the backdrop, with the Great Depression raging on as strong as ever, the U.S. federal government finally provided benefits to a broad range of retirees and the unemployed uh, and a lump sum benefit at death, assuming you weren't black or a woman or worked intermittently. Minorities, uh, women, and the non-fully employed weren't exactly on a level playing field at that point in time. But what did the majority of white men get for the first time in U.S. history? Payments? as a retiree, 
financed by a payroll tax on current workers' wages, money to states to provide assistance to older individuals, unemployment insurance, aid to families with dependent children, public health services, and more. This was a big law. This was a big piece of legislation. And there is your history of capital S, Social Security. And now, now it makes sense how social insurance lent the social part of its name to contributions and distributions among workers, employers, and the federal government. Are you ready for the history of the lowercase s social security? It is a humdiddly dinger, I tell you. Here's how it goes. Once we were primates, and we realized that we'd survive longer, be more healthy, and would enjoy life more if we had others of our species to collaborate with. Eventually, we became homo sapiens, and we kept acting on the timeless wisdom that we'd survive longer, be more healthy, and would enjoy life more if we had others of our species to collaborate with. And then, for a tiny fraction of our history, aka the last few hundred years or less, we stopped thinking of each other as our first and primary, most important form of lowercase social security and started thinking of other things like capital S social security, a la the Social Security Administration of America, as our primary form of social security. There you go. That's the history. The end, right? Uh, Maybe, actually, maybe there's a little bit more to it. You may get the impression that I am against capital S Social Security, as if there is something fundamentally wrong with the Social Security Administration of America or other governmental entities around the world who provide something similar. That's not the case at all. There is a lot to like about capital S Social Security, and I want to explore some of that with you. Now, for what it's worth, uh, I don't exactly see the spirit behind capital S Social Security, at least the way that it exists in the United States, as part of a social contract between me and my federal government, especially since the latest Social Security Trustees report that came out in April 2016 says that the trust fund reserves, which basically go to pay people their distributions, would become depleted between the years 2033 and 2036 without legislative changes, which, (laughs) oh, if you know anything about American politics right now, uh, legislative changes are not exactly likely, kind of on the dysfunctional side here. And then um, after the trust fund is depleted, expected tax revenues would be sufficient to pay only about three-fourths of the scheduled benefits Once you're eligible for benefits, I'm going to start getting into the pros as I see them. I would love if I forget some, if I gloss over something, I would love to know in the show notes or on Twitter or email what you feel are the pros of capital S Social Security. For me, one of the primary ones is once you're eligible for benefits, you don't have to do anything to continue receiving them. You can be the biggest jerk face in the whole world And the government is going to keep sending you your periodic payment. That is a plus. If you are the biggest jerk face in the world to your friends, family, your neighbors, your acquaintances, nobody is going to want to build social capital with you or help you in any way. 
The second thing I see as a pro is financial safety net and guaranteed income. Since my ability to create and cultivate my relationships or for my community to thrive together is at least partially based right now on everyone having a sufficient level of money, uh, payments from the government become sort of a, a social lubricant that allow me to give and receive non-financial gifts more freely. Social security uh, is it's, it's the best, I think, or at least it can be the best we might get until something like the citizen's income becomes real. Now, if you want to learn more about the citizen's income, this is an intriguing concept. Read a blog post by one of my favorite bloggers, a guy named Jeremy Williams. It's called 10 Arguments for a Citizen's Income. And in essence, this thing, the citizen's income, or basic income as some people like to say it, it's a sum of money paid to every adult in a country, no questions asked. It's not necessarily enough to live on. It won't necessarily replace the need to work entirely, but it provides a safety net and much of the benefits uh, of the system could be simplified and replaced all the complexity that's built into things like Social Security. Um, there's a lot to evaluate here, but I just want to say that as far as Social Security goes, until we get something else that's better, like the citizen's income, it's, it's pretty good. A third, uh, I might be able to use my time when I'm retired from the traditional concept of work if I've got Social Security, capital S, to finally do something that I love, something that positively impacts the world, I know that the government's got my back to make sure that I can at least pay for necessities like food, maybe a modest dwelling, and I can focus more on building spiritual, social, and other forms of capital. That is really important, especially for people who are retired from the traditional workforce. To recap real quick, you can be a total jerk face and the government still gives you money. It's about as well-intentioned as any federal direct contribution and distribution program that's not the citizen's income, and it may free you or me up to do something that we love or make a difference in the world. Now let's tackle some of the cons, as I see them, of capital S Social Security. First, the whole system, it's a pyramid scheme. It is legitimately a pyramid scheme. Uh, it depends on enough money coming in to match the amount getting paid out. That might not be a big deal if it weren't for long-term demographic changes like all these baby boomers retiring and drawing money from it instead of paying money into Social Security, which is why the trust fund is estimating that it will be depleted pretty darn soon. And I might be more hopeful if there were some changes to the existing Social Security law about contribution percentages for employees or employers, but we have been caught in a federal congressional-style stranglehold for about a decade where nothing important gets done and big decisions. We're just going to kick that indefinitely down the road. Our gridlock is getting worse. It makes me just think, ah, crap. Another thing, Social Security, it only replaces about 40% of an average wage earner's income after retiring. Again, that wouldn't be as big of a problem if everyone decided to become a minimalist, for example, before retiring or when they stop participating in the traditional economy. I don't see that happening anytime soon. Next, maintaining your security with money. Yes, it can be possible, but your financial legacy is never going to be as strong as your social legacy. 
You can use that money to build your social legacy, but you could just invest directly in your social capital and your social legacy by foregoing some of the emphasis on the financial side, which Social Security provides. These are just a few things that I have in mind. Again, I would love to know whether there's something that you would add to the con list to capitalize Social Security. In my mind, just to recap, we have Social Security may be the biggest Ponzi scheme in the history of the world by a large margin. Uh, It doesn't come close to replacing my pre-retirement or pre-disability income. And I may be buying a financial legacy that could never match my social legacy. All righty, let's evaluate some pros and cons of lowercase s social security now, my preferred version of social security. First thing I want to mention is Robert Putnam reported in his book, Bowling Alone, that if you belong to no local groups and then join just one, just one, you cut your risk of dying in the next year in half, in half. Now, how's that for lowercase social security? Literally keeping you alive. You can throw all of the money that you want. You can have the best healthcare system in the world, but if you don't have your people, your risk of dying increases tremendously at all age ranges. The second thing I want to mention is, for me at least, I'm encouraged to create something more important than wealth when I think of lowercase social security a life of service, of gratitude, uh, or vitality. And I value my interdependency on others instead of fearing anything that threatens my ability to survive on my own. I mean, sure, I can ask you, you can post to me, we can ask ourselves questions like, do I have a pickup truck to take a big tree branch limb that I trim to the compost site? No, I don't. But my neighbor, Seth, he's happy to do it. Do I have to pay a board of directors or hire a director of common sense to guide my business activities? No, I have a mastermind group, hundreds of smart entrepreneur friends and an open family to challenge me, point out my blind spots and pick me up when I fall or fail. I'm just going to keep going. Boom, boom, boom on you. I don't even know what the count is here, but I'm going to keep going. Another one, I can make the leap from me to we. One of my favorite authors and really one of my favorite humans, a guy named Keith Ferrazzi, says in a great book, Who's Got Your Back, that for those who reach out and practice mutual support, the whole becomes far greater than the sum of its parts. Now, he should know since he's built amazing businesses and philanthropic capacity through and with literally thousands of friends, groups, and communities. Hit you with another one here. I can become a massive connection force when I focus on lowercase s social security. I believe it was Seth Godin who was talking to Srini Rao in a broadcast FM podcast episode a few years back uh, that uh, connecting people to each other, that is the thing that will scale. For example, no one who uses Facebook has a relationship with Mark Zuckerberg. Well, almost no one. But Mark Zuckerberg built Facebook to connect billions of people with each other. And as much as I don't personally care for how Facebook conducts their business and a platform built upon advertising and paid promotions, we could all learn something. We could all take a page from their playbook to be the kind of person who elevates others 
and measures our success on how well we connect others to other folks in a genuine, intentional, and meaningful way. The social security that I may get from the government, it just does not create the ripples like the social security I give and get with all the amazing people I come in contact with. Hyperinflation, bankruptcy, some kind of natural disaster, all these things could wipe out your financial capital, boom, just in a heartbeat. But your social capital, that is something that's transferable and lifelong. As long as you are kicking, you have social capital and you can transfer that and convert it to other forms of currency, oftentimes much easier than financial capital. You know, as Colin told me back in episode 90, it's not just my personal connections that matter either. It's also how interconnected everyone is around me. How many of my friends are friends with each other? Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. You might have lots of friends. I really hope that you do. But how many of your friends are friends with your other friends? Are you creating this web, this network of people by the way that you're going about your life, your interactions? Now, how many of my neighbors that I talk to regularly also talk to other neighbors I don't know and spread the word about something or help without being asked? That kind of thing, that kind of transmission, transfusion of social capital is so dang important in my mind. And another thing, we can ask for help with gratitude because we expect that our social capital is more than enough to pay for any past, current, or future reciprocity that's needed. Um, I mention this because it reminds me of a quote from Amanda Palmer's book, The Art of Asking, where she writes, and I'm just going to quote her for a second here, so good, so good. Uh, Amanda Palmer writes, asking for help with shame says, you have the power over me. Asking with condensation says, I have the power over you. But asking for help with gratitude says, we have the power to help each other. So when my asks aren't forced because of how little I have in my bank account, and my asks aren't really demands because of how much status or power my money has given me, a better, a more sustainable form of currency can exchange hands. That is social currency. I have one more for you. Maybe two or three. I don't know. (laughs) We'll, We'll just keep rolling with it here. We forge something more powerful than a contract, even a social contract when we think about lowercase s social security, we forge a covenant with others. David Brooks said this best. He is one of my favorite opinion uh, writers. He writes for the New York Times. And in a recent column, he said that when we go out and we do a deal, we make a contract. Uh, When we are situated within something, it is because we have made a covenant. Now let's contrast those two, contract or covenant. A contract protects the interest of the parties, the entities involved, but a covenant protects the relationships of the people who are involved in them. A covenant exists between people who understand that they are part of one another or part of something bigger, involves some kind of a a vow to serve the relationship that is sealed typically by respect, oftentimes even by something like love. It says, Wherever you go, whatever you do, I will go there. I will be with you. Where you live, I will help you. Your people are my people. Your friends are my friends. But people in a contract, 
what they're trying to do, generally speaking, is provide each other services. It's not a gift economy. Uh, a covenant is very much focused on existing assets, what kind of gifts that we can exchange each other in a non-commercial way. Maybe it's out of love of country. Uh, soldiers, they offer the gift of their service. Uh, teachers offer their students the gift of their attention and their experience. So I see capital as social security as a contract between me and my government, which, again, I willingly support, but it's inferior to the lowercase s social security covenant I enter into each time I connect with other humans or connect them to each other. To recap some of the pros of lowercase s social security I just mentioned, we have that it may literally keep me alive. Uh, Channeled creation with altruistic motivation. Try to say that five times fast. Uh, Interdependency over rugged individualism a.k.a. the way humans have cooperated for almost 100% of our history, Uh, making the leap from me to we, the possibility to become a massive connecting force, asking for help with gratitude instead of shame or condensation, and more covenants than contracts. Obviously, it's not all sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows when it comes to lowercase s social security. I have a few cons that I would like to add next to the pros list and let you evaluate for yourself. First, it is harder to budget social capital than it is financial capital, although uh, I've never needed a social currency budget since I seem to put in plenty and get back plenty without even trying. If you have figured out a way to budget your social capital, if you feel like you even need to budget your social capital, let me know. To me, that seems darn near impossible and perhaps a challenge. Uh, Second thing is losing a major source of lowercase s social security, like when a best friend dies or a family member becomes incapacitated. That that is a potentially bigger hit uh, in absolute terms, definitely, but in, in proportional terms as well than losing access to uppercase S social security. Uh, Inner circles, they are wonderful. And I definitely have one of my own, but uh, I recommend whether you're introverted, extroverted, everyone of any personality type, any behavioral tendency, I really encourage you to diversify your lowercase social security streams as much as possible. I know sometimes that doesn't feel possible. Um, You may be in a season of your life or an ebb in your family's flow where growing existing relationships or forming new ones, that just simply isn't happening. I get it, but I would like you to take the long view here and get some more eggs in your social security basket. I would hate for a knockout blow to come because that super important person in your life is no longer available to you and your lowercase s social security takes a major hit. Next, uh, it is inherently unpredictable. At least uh, at least I know the US government is going to be paying out capital S social security for two more decades or so, but are my relationships going to hold up that long? Can I confidently say I won't have to or want to move to another community or part of the world before I die and sacrifice some of that social security that I've accrued in my former community? You know, capital S social security Those deposits, they're going in my account wherever I am, whomever I'm with. But I have to constantly and intentionally stoke and renew lowercase s social security, or it might just wither away. 
maybe maybe I don't even know that it withers away until I check my balance with the person or community and it comes up insufficient. Last, working harder to build lowercase social security doesn't guarantee that my back-end return is going to be greater. I mean, I could spend the next year of my life solely developing my social capital and what good is it going to do? There's no guarantee there. So here's what I mean. Maybe I bust my hump to make $20,000 this year instead of $10,000 this year. Now, I know that will guarantee me a higher governmental social security payment when it's time to collect because the government is going to pay out my capitalized social security based on the money that I pay in, which is the proportion of the income that I make. However, if I'm busting my hump to try and improve a poor relationship, or maybe I'm trying to take a good relationship to new heights, I don't get to decide what kind of return I get on that investment in the short term or in the long term. In fact, I might get nothing from it, or my lowercase social security account might decrease because I screw something up, or the person, or people I'm engaging with, somebody's got it out for me. Somebody is just crazy pants in some way. Maybe they're misinterpreting what I'm trying to build with them. These are all dangers. These are all real risks, and there is absolutely no guarantee that your future return with lowercase social security is going to pay out when you need it to. To recap the cons as I see them for lowercase social security, we have that it is darn near impossible to budget. Losing a major source of it can be a knockout punch to your emotional or mental well-being. It is inherently unpredictable and working hard to grow it doesn't get me a guaranteed return. I'm sure there are plenty of pros and cons of big S and little s social security that uh, I couldn't cover, I don't know about, and of course, that is where you come in. I would love to see your comments in the show notes for this episode at joelzaslowski.com slash SASM106 about what did you learn in our history lesson about social insurance? What are the pros and cons that you disagree with? Why? Uh, what did I miss out on? Where am I fundamentally flawed in my understanding or perhaps the privilege that I have is uh, misguiding me in terms of how I'm assessing the situation? Uh, additional Pros and cons I totally should have explored. Maybe I could do a follow-up episode if there's enough questions uh, about this topic and people who want me to dive deeper on something or go in a completely different route. Any general thoughts about the merits of Social Security, however you defined it, that would be sweet. All right, uh, you can find links to all the stuff I spoke about, the topic timestamps, takeaways, more grooviness in the show notes. I'll repeat it one more time. joelzeslowski.com slash SASM106. You will also see information in the show notes about how to support me, this show, and our community at joelzeslowski.com slash support. Maybe, uh, maybe I could even add a button to that page to help you subscribe to my email newsletter because I understand it's kind of good, at least according to the thousands of readers that I have of it. Lately, the feedback that I'm getting on my, uh, there's this newish scheduled sequence of emails when somebody signs up. Uh, People have been really enjoying that sequence. And uh, my newsletter is where I share my most raw and sometimes polished uh, goings on 
pretty much better than anywhere else except this very humble podcast. You can always subscribe to my newsletter. You will get half of my popular book, Experience Curating, when you do, along with some other resources. That's at joelzaslavsky.com slash newsletter. <sighs> Big breath time. Uh, whenever I do these solo episodes and I get to the end, I just <laughs> think, wow, that was a doozy. Did I, did I overdo it? Did I get too animated? Am I trying to impress upon you something that I feel is super important? And you're like, wah, wah. I don't even know what he's talking about. I don't care. However you feel about it, if you're feeling the funky flow, if you're feeling some good vibes, if you got something out of this episode, maybe you just generally dig the show, I would love it if you would share it with some folks. People, they whether you know it or not, uh, social security, right? Uh, they're depending on you to point them to the good stuff. And I'm always grateful when you talk to other people about what we are building here together. In other words, go get social. See what kind of security that you can develop from it. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zaslowski. Now go simplify something. Hug someone or get your sexy spreadsheet on.